When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit ExcelsiorGP.com slash podcast. So, Dr. Deganji, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Really looking forward to the conversation. I've been doing a lot of homework on you, listening to you on podcasts. You've got a really good Instagram account. You've got this new book rolling out. You've been doing a lot of speaking engagements. So I appreciate the time you're taking with us. Before we went live, we talked about where we want to focus. And I came from a very selfish perspective of being a 41-year-old husband, father of two boys who are 10 and 7, as well as an entrepreneur business leader. And so I'm going to be spending most of my time in those areas. But it's really going back to this question that I think a lot of us are pondering as we get into maybe the second act of our lives, which is kind of how do we live our best life in a lot of ways? And that's this big question that you've been tackling in the book tries to take a very kind of coherent, tactical approach to, correct? And neuroscientific. Yeah, very evidence-based. So I don't know if your listeners know, but I am a neuropsychologist. I've done a lot of research, fMRI and EEG research around emotions, specifically emotions we don't like to feel, stress, fear, anger, frustration. Yeah, you're exactly right. I just wanted to add the neuroscientific piece. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think many of us now, because of books like yours and social media and podcasts, we are starting to learn more about less anecdotal and more evidence-based research and how we can improve our lives. And a big one for me, I've gone through a bit of a journey over the last year, which we may or may not get into on this conversation, but a big takeaway for me, especially in, in therapy, has been that I'm not necessarily my emotions, right? And I'm not necessarily my feelings, that they can be 
separate things. And you talk a lot, obviously, about the ability to use and leverage our emotions, but have a relationship with them that can ultimately help improve our lives instead of being beholden to them in the direction of our lives. Absolutely. So much about this work to become very, I, I use this term, we're going to use it quite a bit in our conversation, emotionally powerful, requires wisdom and it requires depth. I, ironically enough, starting on Wednesday, I'm, I'm running a program. It's one of my longest programs called The Deepening. And the slogan is, the wise amongst us understand power is about depth. The reason I'm saying this is I, I think that emotions are such an interesting energy. And when I'm going to use the term energy a lot, I certainly don't mean that metaphysically. I don't even mean it metaphorically. Emotions are, at their most neurobiological level, neuroelectrical impulses that are communicating through your nervous system and telling you what to do about your behavior. Now, I think a lot of us have felt many times in our lives that our emotions are something that are just done to us. Like we wake up and we think we're in a good mood and then wham, we're like in the middle of like our bad feelings or we walk into a meeting or we walk into a room or our kids start having a meltdown or our team doesn't cooperate. There's this dialectic with emotion. And I think a, a very powerful piece, like one half of this is that we have a lot of authority over our emotions. Now, for many of us, we were never taught this. We were never taught. The best we were taught is how to shove our emotions down and just kind of power through. Especially, I, I know, speaking to you and to your audience, a lot of us high-performing leaders have become quite exceptional in a lot of ways at denying our emotional energy. But the question that you're asking is the fundamental question that everyone asks me, which is, how do I live well? Some people will say, how do I be more confident? How do I be more happy? At the fundamental level, we're all saying the same thing, right? So the way I explain this to people is your emotions are really, I think, one of the best ways to think about your emotions is they are the Google Maps of your life, okay? So they're quite literally this neurobiological messengers that are saying, at the next intersection, turn right and immediately leave the job, or at the next intersection, turn right and speak up in the meeting because you definitely want to speak up. And then what do we do? We drive to the next intersection and then turn left. Now, you do that once, you do that twice, you do that a hundred times. No problem. But the problem really is that most of us over and over and over again are severing our emotional system from our behavioral system. Let me give you a few examples of this to really concretize it for your listener. So I feel exhausted. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I really need rest. So my emotional system is clearly signaling to me, I need rest. What do I do? I then overwork. I overgive. I overfunction. So in that moment, you can really clearly see like all we are is energy. And I'm having a part of my, again, not metaphysical, but literal neurobiological energy feeling in one direction. But then the behavior system is performing in the exact opposite direction. People love to say that emotions are so confusing. I couldn't disagree with this more. I think emotions are a native, universal, and most primitive form of human communication. 
we all came out speaking in the language of emotion. If you continuously divide the way you feel from the way you act, the consequence is quite mathematical. You feel depleted. You feel lacking in energy. You feel like you don't have vitality. You feel depleted. And then we look around and say, God, the world just doesn't work for me. If that were true, I think we would all be up Shit's Creek. Like it's, it, what could we do then? But if we understand, I think one of the most powerful things we can do in this lifetime is integrate our emotional system with our behavioral system. We become so powerful. We become, not only do we start to feel better, but we become the living evidence of the thing other people want the most in this lifetime. So when we talk about leadership, we can't talk about leadership and not talk about emotion. Say more about the last statement about the you become what people want for themselves. Oh, my God. So I just got chills when you asked that question. The the thing that people want. So I've done I just want to like qualify this statement I'm about to make is like I've done so much work in human systems. So I have worked in large organizations. I've worked one-on-one with some of the top leaders on the planet. I work with teams and then I do a lot of work in homes. I work with individuals. I work with parents and I work with couples. So I have a lot of expertise across kind of human relationships and human emotion. The thing that I think people want more than anything in this lifetime is access to their own power. Now, when I say power, I don't mean command and control, coercive authority over other people, our wholeness. You see this happening because psychology is in my DNA. Quite literally, I come from a lineage of psychologists. So I've been watching the mental health, emotional intelligence conversations for 40 some years. And so it's been incredible to watch, I think, really sped up by the pandemic, these conversations about authenticity about empathy, about honesty, about transparency, right? So what people are saying is more than anything, they want to be able to be what they are and be okay. To be able to have ideas and not be humiliated about them, to be able to take risks and be reasonably safe, to be able to be connected, to also have freedom. But the only way this can really work is if we understand how to work with our own emotional energy. When I say the thing that people want more than anything on this planet is access to their own power, what I'm saying is they want access to their own wholeness. When we look around at a lot of leaders of prior generation, I think a lot of us are saying that wasn't really an authentic model. We saw people overwork. We saw them try to control other people in harmful ways. In other words, the old paradigm doesn't really inspire a lot of us. But when you think about leaders in your life who really do light you up, they're never micromanaging you. They're never telling you exactly how to do it. You can tell they're in their own authority and they're genuinely lit up by the work that they're doing. And there's something about those leaders that magnetize us. What is the thing that magnetizes us? The thing that magnetizes us is the energy of emotion. Now, again, I do not mean this metaphysically. Neuroscience tells us that emotion is a thing of contagion. This is a huge conversation for people who want to strengthen their leadership. What do I mean by this? Let me just, I wouldn't even need to go into the neuroscience. Let's just use a couple of examples from our own lives. Plenty of times we have been in an okay mood. 
and we walk into a room and all of a sudden our emotional energy sinks like a lead balloon. Sometimes somebody didn't even say anything. You just walk and the air is like thick and it's not good. The converse of that is also true. There's been times in our life where we just are whatever. We walk into a room. This one's actually my favorite. People are laughing hysterically. We don't even know what they're laughing about and we'll start laughing. So these are just like minuscule examples of how contagious emotions are. People catch emotion very similarly to how we catch cold. So a lot of times what will happen in our leadership is we will say, the people around me are inspiring. The people around me aren't accountable enough. They're not engaged enough. They're not motivated. I mean, pick your poison. So in my work with leaders, and again, leaders in both the workplace and leadership in our homes, the way we behave with our children, with our partners, even on social media, we will overwhelmingly want to help other people. So we'll, but we'll do it in this frequency of trying to control them. Like, I just need to give you more advice, or I just need to make this easier for you, or I just need to re-explain myself for the 27,000th time, okay? But that's not how people change their emotional state. The most powerful thing we can understand as leaders is that emotions are a thing of contagion, and the leader in any system is the person with the clearest emotional signal. So let me explain how this really came through for me. I can take it to sort of corporate settings in a second, but it really came through for me in my work and family systems. So I do a lot of work with very competent parents, very high achieving, very well-educated, very well-intentioned. Over and over, I was watching these families be brought to their knees by the emotional energy of their four-year-old, their six-year-old, their 10-year-old, their 13-year-old, their 16-year-old. So you can see in that, in that example that I just gave, is it's the emotional energy of the 10-year-old that is setting the standard, a lot of us will call that the culture, of that family system. So what happens a lot of times, and tell me if this resonates with you, is We'll be, we'll get so invested in the emotional energy of our people who are struggling on our team and in our home that we will then drop our emotional energy to that level. They're panicking. Now we're panicking. They're upset. Now we're upset about the fact that they really shouldn't be upset. They're starting to get dysregulated and we start shouting, calm down. Except never in the history of human beings calmed down has somebody ever calmed down when someone's shouting, calm down at them. Right? We'll want them to be more collaborative with us and we'll punish. That makes no damn sense because the whole function of punishment is to drive away. I also see the same dynamic play out in teams. A lot of times they'll be brought into organizations to help clean up some of the psychology and very confident high performers will get derailed by the energy of one or two bad apples. In those cases, we should totally take judgment out of it because Judgment just shuts down the nervous system. It's all about shame. So I always say, let's just be scientific and curious about it. If we're dropping our kind of culture, our emotional energy to the level of the very thing we're saying we hate, we are not the leader they are. Again, nope, we don't even have to judge it. Let's just be mathematical about it. So then the work is, okay, this is actually making a lot of sense. Great. What do I do to change? 
I start to ask myself some of the most powerful questions of my life. Am I engaged here? Am I calm here? Am I inspired here? Am I motivated here? If I'm willing to have kind of one of these come to Jesus conversations with myself or a coach like myself, I, whatever, we can say the truth is I'm actually really frustrated. Here's the thing about that. Your team, whether it's conscious or unconscious, they're feeling the emotional energy of your frustration. They are feeling the emotional energy of your micromanagement. They are feeling the emotional energy of your whatever. So I'm going to take a breath here. Is this making sense the way I'm explaining this? It's resonating both at work and at home, right? I've got a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, two boys. My wife is a child psychologist, and she's done a good job of of trying to train me, help me through some of this, of being curious and not judgmental. So for instance, when your child comes in the room and they make a statement that typically would have been incendiary and I would have responded with correct some kind of admonition or a punishment or something. Instead, I say, that's interesting you say that. Tell me more. Why are you saying that? What makes you ask that question? And it really just to use a, it like deprivesces the room. It brings the temperature down. And I think you do have this idea that for many of people of my generation, men especially, right? We were never given the tools or like the verbiage to use to handle our emotions in a healthy way. And so I think the way you've seen this play out and COVID provide a good reflection point is exactly the statement you made earlier. For many of us, if we're feeling shame or self-hatred or self-pity or anger like we really have two or three options available to us it seemed at the time it seemed like you can just work a lot harder you you can go get messed up right you can go get hammered or whatever your drug of choice is Mm -hmm. or you can do some other things that really mask your emotions as opposed to handle them and a lot of the work that you do is helping guide people to accept and experience those painful emotions as a way to have agency over yourself moving forward. And I think it's a really powerful concept. It's a, oh my God, if I had a million lifetimes, I would live it talking about this work every single time. It is so transformative. So I, the, the whole premise of energy rising, and sometimes I'm approached to do public facing things. Like sometimes be on TV shows or sometimes I've always said no. I like to say I'm a Midwest academic who likes to go to two good parties a year and then spend the rest of my time alone in my office, right? Treating my patients, helping my clients, thinking really. The reason I was willing to write, so the book is published by Harvard Business Review, is to have the opportunity to speak to some of the world's most powerful leaders, thinkers about this, these ideas of emotion. I thought was just extraordinary. And so the premise of energy rising is this, and it is counterintuitive, which is why I love to be able to have these opportunities to expound on it. Every single thing we want in this lifetime is on the other side of the feelings we keep telling ourselves we cannot feel. So if I want 
more self-confident, if I want more resilience, if I want more peace, I have to start coming into a new relationship with the very energies I have not allowed myself to feel. One of the things that's really an aha moment for people is if everyone loves to talk about empathy or authenticity or self-confidence or courage, these things hurt. They hurt. If they didn't hurt, every single person on the planet would be confident. It would be authentic. So what do I mean by this? In order to be, just think about this so logically. I really encourage your leaders to like, your listeners to don't worry about my credentials. Just think, does this make sense in my own brain and my own body? Just because truth is always going to feel like truth. If I say, which I think a lot of people are, I want to be more authentic in my life. When I want water, I just drink water. So if, if I'm saying I want to be more authentic in my life and I'm not, I must identify the resistance. Again, just to be really scientific about it. Okay, what is the resistance with being more authentic? It's that people are going to reject me. People aren't going to understand me. People aren't going to want to talk to me. People aren't going to give me opportunities. When I, I'll tell a really quick story is I do a lot of work in large corporate settings or I had one really large corporate client who was really, I've done some wonderful work with them. I really enjoyed them. When I first started, I didn't speak as much about, about pain and power and emotional energy quite in this way. And I thought I have to, I'm going to choke on it if I don't. It's like the, the power in, inside of me felt so real, so authentic. So I, I did it. And sure enough, basically, I'm really good friends with someone who else is high up in the organization. And this person who had brought me in to do a lot of work reached out to this other person who I don't think this person knew was my friend and said, what in the world is going on with Julia on social media right now? And I thought to myself, even telling the story now, I feel a little vulnerable. I'm getting a little hot. I felt, oh my God, it's all coming true. I've ruined everything. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, okay, first of all, let's roll back the catastrophic thinking. And let's actually just say for a moment, let's say for a moment that it is true. I can't really talk this way on social media. Am I willing to go back and talk the way I already told myself was inadequate to me so that other people will like this version of myself that I don't even like? And I thought to myself, hell no. Because then you're delegating your emotional power to a bunch of people that you don't even know. Yes. No. Which is a really messed up way to live your life long term. Not only, it just doesn't, it's totally unsustainable. Right. So watch this, okay? So we are having a moment where everyone is talking about psychological safety. Again, another kind of construct that I've watched evolve over decades. So this is amazing. There is not a shred of doubt of evidence that the brain needs safety in order to perform well. So great. We should have more conversations about psychological safety. But here is the piece that is missing from the conversation that I am on fire for. How would it possibly matter? How would it matter if the entire world was safe to me so long as I'm willing to be dangerous to myself? So let's say this organization said, here, come in and do an another tons and tons of talks, tons and tons of training, but you have to do it 
but in, a, in an energy where you already don't like yourself. If we are serious about cleaning up our lives, we need to meet them at the level of our emotion. Why? Because the meaning of your life, this is another huge, a huge drop. The meaning of your life rises on the energy of your emotion. Take the most existential questions of your life. Are you a successful person? I don't know. How do you feel about it? Are you a good father? I don't know. How do you feel about it? How much money is enough money? How much time is enough time? How much all of these questions are ultimately mediated by emotional systems. I, I had a call the other day with a client of mine who had received a very large bonus. It was about $300,000. And on the call, so this is a one-on-one -on -one coaching call, he was, by the end of the call, he was crying and he was saying, I'm so frustrated with myself. And the reason I'm so frustrated with myself is because objectively, I know this is an incredible amount of money. When the money hit my bank account, I felt good for about 24 hours. But by the 25th hour, I was already like, doesn't feel like it's not enough. Doesn't feel like it's enough. Uh, Got to hustle again, right? Based on my experience working in financial services for 15 years, I'm surprised it lasted 24 hours. There's an old adage in the investment banking industry that and this is dated so you can put however many zeros you want on it but the, the the context is correct the saddest person in town is the one who just sold this company for 25 million dollars because when they derive all their meaning from work or they derive all their meaning from some type of monetary benefit they assign all their value to it and when those things are fleeting you yourself have no value i think is where your mind goes and many of us were taught to those questions, those fundamental existential questions that just went over, we were always taught to avoid them to whatever extent possible by like workaholism, alcoholism, viewing pornography or whatever it is to do anything other than experience the emotions that your mind is trying to tell you to have. Anything else is a better option than that. Exceptional family offices, family enterprises, wealth management, and financial services organizations require superior leadership to successfully thrive in today's competitive environment. Building a team of talented leaders is a complex challenge that is best accomplished in partnership with a firm that offers a proven track record of success, which is why I'd like to introduce you to our new sponsor, Mac International. Mac International is recognized as the premier boutique firm that specializes in providing retained executive search and strategic human capital consulting solutions to single and multi-client family offices, family enterprises, and the full spectrum of wealth management advisory, investment management, and financial services firms that serve ultra-high net private investors and family offices on a national and international basis. If you're interested in learning more about Mac International, visit their website at macinternational.com. Totally. And I, the fact that you have these examples, it's like we all, we can all resonate, right? Because the things in our life that matter to us are the things we say has value. Mm -hmm. <laughs> value is entirely emotional. Why does one person pay hundreds of thousand dollars for a piece of art and another person is, I wouldn't pay 10 bucks for that thing. 
So it's, we have to start reckoning with the emotional system. And I think that this is such an exquisite moment in time because what's happening is there's all these advances in AI, right? And AI has totally outpaced the human cognitive system in terms of information processing, speed of processing, retention, all these kind of like classic cognitive functions. So what happens is species only evolve based on pressure, based on environmental pressure. So I am like... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Like over the moon to be born at this moment in time, because what's going to happen is there's going to be this wild expansion in, uh, in emotional intelligence. And I am totally here for it. But you are exactly right. It's, I, I want to say something else, too, that I think is really clarifying. And I can tell some stories that I think would be useful to your listeners as well. There is absolutely no shame. You have to keep coming back to this because as soon as shame enters the equation, the nervous system shuts down like the speed of light. Okay. So you really have to say, all right, let me just get scientific about this or to use your, let me get curious about this. All right. At the primitive level, the brain doesn't like pain. In fact, Every single problem in your life, the only reason, this is another big moment, the only reason it's actually a problem is because it makes you feel feelings you don't like to feel. In other words, if you said, hey, Julia, this was the dumbest interview I've ever had. I hope to never see your ugly face ever again. And I genuinely had no bad feelings about that. I wasn't upset or humiliated or sad. There would be no problem for me. So every single problem, a lot of us spend too much time thinking about the situations in our life. He said this, she said this, the deal's going to close, the deal didn't. No, tell me about the emotional system and I can change your situation, okay? So all problems are about pain. Now at the reflexive level, the brain says, get me out of pain as quickly as possible. 
the way that the brain navigates both physical and emotional pain at the primitive level is, is quite similar. In other words, if I put my hand on a hot stove, I'm going to yank my hand away. And it's going to encode in my nervous system. Do not do that again. In neuropsychology, we call this one trial learning. I put my hand on a hot and I'm like, maybe I should try again on Thursday morning. Nope, not going to do it. So the, the pain signal, the distress says we're not going to do it again. The problem with emotional pain in our life is that every single emotional problem you have, let me say 99.9, is chronic. You're not upset about the one time your team did it. You're upset because it's happening again. We have the same fight with our spouses probably 50,000 times. We have the same insecurities. We have the same grievances with our kids. It's like the same problem keeps coming up over and over again. So what most of us are doing is we're avoiding. There's a lot of clever ways your brain will get you to avoid. And, and you actually named some of them, Brian. We will overwork. We will overthink. We will overfunction. We will overconsume social media, alcohol. Or not. There's a million ways your brain will say, hey, that situation doesn't feel good. So let's pull our hand off the hot stove. Okay. The problem with this is that if we want to get more emotionally powerful, we have to, again, just get really logical about how human life works. There is no option on the planet where there is a pain-free option. Trying to construct a pain-free life is trying to let, construct a life where there is no aging, where there is no gravity. So if I came to you and I was like, hey, Brian, so I'm looking for a place on the planet to live where there's no gravity. You'd be like, that's the dumbest. What are you? Good luck with that, Julia. Let me know how that goes for you. So a lot of us are trying to engineer our lives in ways that are pain-free. This is a waste of your holy energy. If we're ready for emotional power, and to the extent that we are, we have to start saying, in a life that promises me pain, because that's what it means to be human, what is the pain that empowers me the most? So let's say I'm trying to have a hard conversation with you. But every time I try to talk to you, I get a little bit anxious. I get a little bit scared. I get a little bit nervous. And so I avoid. That's not pain-free. Because here's what I have to sit with. I know, and I don't care if it's conscious or not. Most of your processes are unconscious anyway. I know I can't trust myself. I know that I won't stick up for myself when I'm hard. I know that I've shut down on myself. Do you see what I'm saying? So in my avoidance of the fear that I would have to feel to talk to you, I'm, I'm sitting with another pain. And that pain is what I call my willingness to self-betray. So now I have to say, would I rather have the pain of self-betrayal or would I rather have the pain of having this conversation? And in this conversation, I'm going to feel fear. My throat's going to get a little bit tight. My hands might sweat a little bit. And that, from that point right there, I can just choose. And here's this really spacious thing. When you're honest about it, even that is progress. In other words, I might say, you know what? Today is not a good day for me. I'm going to choose the pain of self-betrayal. But let me at least be powerful enough to be honest about what I'm doing. Because if I'm honest, maybe next week, next month, next year, when I'm really working with reality, I might say, today is a good day to choose a new pick. In many ways, I think it's you're choosing the time frame of the pain, right? If we accept the concept that life is suffering and that the pain never goes away, there are choices you can make about experiencing that pain sooner rather than later.
but your avoidance behavior is just borrowing from your future in many ways. So when you choose to make that hard, I've heard it said before, your happiness today is just one hard conversation away. And if you keep putting off that conversation, you keep putting off some degree of happiness that you might otherwise have in your life. And that's how it really seems to me in a lot of ways is you can make these choices, but you're just borrowing from the future, depending on how you construe those choices today. Well, I think you said that beautifully. I think what you're saying is totally in alignment with some of the best neuropsychological evidence we have. One of the things I think is very clarifying for people to understand is that anxiety. Now, anxiety exists on a continuum, right? There's mild stress all the way up to traumatic stress. But what anxiety is about is it's actually not about the thing you're afraid of. It's about avoiding. So if you think about, I'll give a couple of examples that I think will clarify for people. It's winter in Chicago and now my throat's drying out. So if you think about a disorder like OCD, okay? So OCD is, I'm going to keep, Let's. there's lots of variants of OCD, but let's say mine is, I'm going to keep checking. I'm going to keep checking my doors to make sure they're locked. The whole reason I'm checking my doors is because as I check, it, it lessens a sensation I don't like in my body. The problem with this is if I could check my doors three times and it goes away, good for me. That would be the better strategy. But what happens when we avoid is the demand for the avoidance behavior gets higher and higher. It does not stay static. In other words, I checked my door three times today. Next month, I'm going to have to check it five times. The next month, 50 times. We understand this so clearly on the physical health side. In other words, if I want to be able to lift more weight and I can only lift five pounds right now, I can't avoid five pounds. I can't avoid seven pounds. I can't avoid. And if I do avoid it, there's going to be atrophy. There's going to be atrophy of the physical system. If you keep avoiding the emotional resistance, there's going to be, there's going to be atrophy. Yeah. Which is in the kind of bodybuilding physique world, when you want to increase your musculature, you do progressive overload. And so you track what you're doing day one, and then you do incrementally more to achieve hypertrophy which is, I think, is a great analogy for our emotional work. If, but the nice thing, so let's like put a positive spin on this as we land the plane. I think the really exciting thing about today versus maybe a generation ago is because of people like you in the field, there are things that we can implement in our lives to improve this, right? There are tactical decisions that we can use to literally increase our happiness on a daily basis. We may not enjoy some of the process, but it's there for us if we want it. Yeah. So let me tell. So first of all, I would, as we land the plane, I, I hope that this an incredibly uplifting message. So the message is, I'll say something broad and then tell a story, is all these feelings that we think are here to torment us, our anxiety, our fear, our sense of adequacy, they are not here to torment us. They are calling us into our next level of leadership and our next level of emotional power. They are a portal to greater power. Okay. I'm going to give a very extreme story that I think is going to clarify like how transformative and how relieving and how spacious and how life-giving 
working with negative emotions can be. So we, again, we think if I just avoid the emotion, I pull my hand back from the hot stove, the hot conversation, the, the podcast I want to start, the business I want to start, I'll be safe. But that's actually suffocating you. So you're actually creating this sort of suffocation device on ourselves, right? So here, I'll tell this story. It's a very extreme story. I'm going to tell the story in Energy Rising. It's about combat trauma. And the reason I'm going to tell the story is because if it's true at the most extreme, I want people to think about how there's wisdom for those of us who have not experienced this level of trauma. So someone came in to see me. I, I do a lot of work with PTSD. And they said they'd been back from their deployment for many years. And they were like, my life is a, a mess. It's a disaster. Nothing has worked. So I say, okay, tell me what's going on. And he says, I don't do anything. anymore. I don't drive. I don't go to restaurants. I don't go to movies. I can't work. I get in altercations with people. And most devastatingly, he was really estranged from his family. When he first got back from his deployment, his kids were really little. PTSD has a lot of symptoms, including irritability and anger. It was but little kids, they're, they're chaos, right? So it was very difficult for him to be around his kids. Anyway, so he's estranged from the family. So I say, in a word, you've been avoiding. If I don't have this conversation, I'll be safe. If I don't watch this movie, I'll be safe. If I don't drive this car, I'll be safe. So I say, how's it working out for you? He says, it's not working out at all. Great. We have some very strong, the frontline, most evidence-based treatments. We have to do the opposite. Now, this is really a really important piece, okay? The best way to think about your brain is as a pattern detection machine. So your brain will keep doing more of the same, even when the same, you already have plenty of evidence, is hurting you. Your brain just goes, apple, and you're like, God, please save me. Don't make me eat another apple. And your brain, you know what you need? You need 17 apples. You're like, no, I don't actually need 17 apples. And then your brain, you're right, you need 27 apples, right? So much of the change that we require is actually very simple. It's just counterintuitive. So I say to him, the most frontline treatments we have is to do the opposite of what you've been doing. Exposure therapy. Exactly. Yeah. So technically exposure, right? We're going to talk about your trauma in detail. We're going to have you record it. And you're going to go home and listen to it over and over. Yeah. He's, of course, like at first, they pay you to say this shit. <laughs> have you not been listening to me? I don't. But he understands the rationale. He understands like there's a lot of evidence behind it. And so this is the part that I think is so incredible. At week 12, he comes into my office. Now, he's been home for many years, suffering. At week 12, he comes into my office and he holds his little phone up and he says, I can't listen to this recording anymore. So I say, well, sit down and tell me what's going on. And he says, every time I listen to this recording, I fall asleep. It is dull as shit. Whoa. So the memory, the thing that was trapped in the emotional system, that for years he was trying to escape, and the only thing he ended up doing was shrinking his life, is now so boring it lulls him to sleep. And the only way that transformation is possible is when we are willing to come into a new relationship with the feelings that, if we're really honest, we're already feeling. Yeah. We're already depressed. We're already anxious. We're already frustrated. We're already enraged. The only person we're fooling, we're not actually fooling the nervous system. We're just fooling a part of our conscious awareness. 
It reminds me of something I borrowed from Peter Atia. He did this exercise where he would, when he was in a state of like self-hatred, he would record a voice memo to himself of how much he hated himself and how disappointed he was. And then his therapist would make him send it to a friend. And, and he would juxtapose that he was speaking to his friend as opposed to himself. And after a while, obviously, I would never say that to my friend. That's an awful thing to do. So yeah, then why would you speak to yourself like this? And so I tried it a few times and it's like really powerful. But yeah, it's hard. You're bringing up a beautiful point. You know how people will say, don't put good money after bad? And we're like, perfect. We're like, totally logical. What we try to do, and this is another, I'm trying to again make this case because I understand the counterintuitive. No one likes to not feel good, okay? But what a lot of us are trying to do is we're trying to put good emotion on top of bad. So in other words, I start saying things like, well, I'm just going to be really positive today. I'm going to be really optimistic. I'm really going to start. But inside of me is hatred, is rage, is despondency, is terror. The other thing that drives me crazy is when people will be like, so this is a this is going to be a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> this is going to be my stop with the bullshit. It's utterly terrifying. And it actually, the people that I'm much more excited to work with are the people who understand what I'm saying. Because if you think it's not just, it's going to be a mild challenge, let me just understand that already inside of me is terror. So if so you see how hopeful this is, I've already bottomed out inside of my own nervous system. The only way for me to go is to keep shoving it down, keep denying what's already there. Or, and this is why I called the book Energy Rising, let the energy rise. In other words, let me just admit what's there, let it go. And then I can finally start building good emotion on top of it. Yeah. The power of letting it go is something you talk about a lot, which I think is a hard concept for us to navigate internally, but obviously like hugely fundamental to progressing, to advancing. Absolutely. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for the time. I would love to do a part two. Didn't get to a lot of what I wanted to, but... I'm excited for the book. I'm excited for you. You're a great follow on Instagram. The website is incredible. You're doing a lot of speaking engagements. So I definitely encourage our listeners to check you out. If people are interested in learning more, like where I assume they can get the book on Amazon and, and wherever books are published, correct? Exactly. Exactly. So the book's everywhere. And I, the way I break the book down, it's in eight codes. So there's these eight neural energetic codes. And I take people really through very and very powerful exercises about very specific ways to strengthen their nervous systems and their emotional power. Yeah, it's awesome. And I think hugely timely too. So thank you for all the work. A question that we do ask folks that come on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? I do. I do. I am a religious. I, I journal every night and I'm very, it's, it's very... There's no structure. So the idea of it being like a very free process is very important to me. I'll, I can't help myself. I have to interject a little bit of neuroscience here. So emotions are stored in a part of the brain where there's no linguistic function. So language is a very frontal function. So part of the reason we think, for example, talk therapy works is because you're putting linear language to a sort of free-floating emotional sensation. 
So for me, every single night, I will just write. I'll just put words to whatever I'm feeling. If you probably went back and read my journal, you would be like, these make no damn sense. (laughs) But I think there's something very powerful about having that space and linking that space between emotion and language with no clear target. Yeah, I've been in talk therapy for a while now, and I always go in thinking I'm going to speak about these two or three things, and then we always don't, or we all go off into a tangent. And then afterwards, when I reflect back on the meeting, I often don't recall anything of substance that we covered really in that conversation, but I find it hugely helpful. So... Yeah, journaling. Say more about that. You feel a sense of relief. Having a safe, non-judgmental place to be able to speak broadly, especially to a male authority figure for me, is like hugely beneficial, I've found personally. I feel that so much. One of the things about therapy that we know works, so there's all these different modalities of therapy right? Some is CVT, some is psychoanalytic, some is somatic. But the one sort of common factor that we know when you do these big meta-analytic studies is the relationship. There's this beautiful saying, it actually comes out of the 12-step tradition, that we are only as sick as our secrets. So it's this idea, again, that there's something so disgusting about me, something so rejectable about me that I can never tell anybody. So to be able to tell a safe person these things to just another human being, you know, again, it's so simple and yet it's so transformative. Yeah. I mean, that goes to this broader conversation amongst, I think, many people in our generation of this acute sense of loneliness in a very chaotic, noisy world. Most of the men I know who are my peer cohort, especially professionals, if you were to try to ask them like, Do you have two or three people that you would consider close friends that you speak to on a weekly basis that aren't work colleagues? They would really struggle and they would probably just name their spouse, which is a really unfortunate situation because what I've learned, it's like your spouse is really important, but they're not your best friend and they're not your therapist. They should have a relationship with you that is separate from those things. They can't be all things to you. And so that's where I find my talk therapy to be very powerful because I have a very clear relationship with that person. Like we are there for a mutually understood relationship. And I just find it, I find that hugely like emotionally balancing myself. Totally. One one final thing I want to say is um, the idea of, we know that social support is such a huge predictor of well-being, but you're exactly right. A lot of us deny it to ourselves. And the reason we deny it to ourselves is because, again, the only reason, because we know there's something about it that's very attractive, is because we think there's going to be greater pain, mostly that we're going to be rejected or somehow kicked out of the group. When I was doing more individual therapy with combat veterans, I don't, this is not really the bulk of my work anymore, is I'm a woman, I'm a civilian, and so I would say there's, we have these wonderful groups. They're all men. They're all combat veterans. We had them where they were structured. So there was like Vietnam groups. We had Afghanistan groups. And it was like kicking and screaming. Mm. The idea that I would be able to, even though I intellectually know all these men are going to get it, but the men who did it 
were like, it was the most, the individual component was wildly helpful, but also the group to be with other people, understand me, to hear my experience reflect this. I, I keep saying I could talk to you forever, <laughs> but most of our injuries happen in relationship. It, our injuries happened in relationship. It is true that we must also be, be healed in relationship. And that's one of the things that I talk about a lot is if we learned about how to be relational from our fathers and our fathers were like workaholics or alcoholics or both. or both and cut themselves off so that now when they're retired, which the generation of baby boomers for the most part are in their like 65 to 85 cohort popular age range. If you see the life they live now, which is they have no friends, they have no hobbies, many of them are divorced, and they're like unilaterally miserable, how's that working out for you? But if you don't have a sense of how else to behave, it's really hard to figure out. And I think for many of us who are parents, that old adage of every parent wants the childhood for their kid that they didn't have for themselves. So we're trying, but... It's hard. So I applaud people like you were trying to give us a playbook to work from because I don't think many of us had it. This has been incredible. I know we have, I'm up on time, but thank you for the opportunity. Best of luck with your book. I definitely encourage people to check it out. Follow you on the socials. You're putting incredible content out there and keep up the good work. And thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.